Today on the Cineos Health Podcast, we'll be talking about artificial intelligence. I'm Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. I'll be joined by Duncan Arbor, Senior Vice President for Innovation. We'll be talking about artificial intelligence, how patients respond to it in healthcare, and then how we as pharmaceutical companies should think about artificial intelligence and how that will change how we deliver our services to patients. Artificial intelligence for authentic engagement with patients today on the Cineos Health Podcast. Duncan Arbor, welcome to the Cineos Health Podcast. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Big fan of this podcast. Pleasure to be here. Just just go easy on me, okay? Uh, I, we don't do that. In fact, um, we have an AI that's replacing me at some point that will go even harder on guests. <laughs> I can see you know what I'm here to talk about. Excellent. Yes, yes. If you believe the narrative... AI is going to replace everyone's job function. It's just a question of time, Jeff. But, you know, the skills you have, I think it will take a while. (laughs) You're kind, but um, no. (laughs) So artificial intelligence, Gary Kasparov, the chess player, has talked about artificial intelligence as being at the beginning where artificial intelligence is much, much, much too weak to beat a good human. And then there's a short time period where it's just about the same as a human, or at least it's a fight. And then after that, it's game over and artificial intelligence is much better than a human. Where are we with artificial intelligence in terms of healthcare delivery? What are we talking about? It's a really good question. I think it's probably worth breaking down the fact that AI is at the moment really quite a loose bucket of technologies. Yeah. Are you you familiar with the Gartner hype cycle, Jeff? The hype cycle? No, I am not familiar. What's the hype cycle? You'd love it. You'd love it. So Gartner, big, big tech analyst. Every year they do their kind of review of all of those hot new technologies that are out there. And it follows the progression from the first technology trigger. And then things inevitably reach what's known as the peak of inflated expectations before sinking down into my favorite phase of the hype cycle, what's known as the trough of disillusionment. I love that because it sounds like someone at Gartner has read John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. It's very slow of despond. And finally, after the time that they spend in that trough of disillusionment, they might climb up the slope of enlightenment to the plateau of productivity. Look, here's the deal. If you start looking at the technologies that fall under AI, some of these things, they're in daily usage, yeah? It's when Facebook recognizes the photo that you've uploaded as being a friend. And then at the other end, right at that peak of inflated expectations, are things such as, oh, artificial general intelligence. So this is what you'll be familiar with. I guess you're kind of the same age as me, Jeff. You'll have watched Kubrick's 2001 uh, Impressionable Age. Artificial general intelligence is Hal refusing to close the pod bay doors. I think that's what Kasparov talks about when he talks about man being defeated. It's what Elon Musk of Tesla talks about when he counsels society that we need to be careful with AI because to use his wonderful quote, we have unleashed the demon. But demons aside, you asked about healthcare and from where I see it, the two kind of technologies that get grouped in that bucket of AI that have relevance to healthcare are what are known as deep learning and machine learning. So this is very much you feed in a series of inputs to an algorithm, you kind of train it to recognize what these inputs are. For example, a series of medical images, and that algorithm goes off, it learns, it teaches itself, for example, how to recognize 
cancerous cells from non-cancerous cells. There's obviously that fantastic paper, and apologies for geeking out on this, fantastic paper published by Sebastian Thrun, ex of Google, paper published in Nature last year, looking at diagnosis through machine learning and algorithms of melanomas on the skin. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, you must have seen some of this, Jeff. I mean, for me, that's the main narrative that we get fed through the media around artificial intelligence in health. It's that idea that machines and algorithms, particularly those that take medical imaging as an input, it's the narrative that they're better already than average physicians, average human physicians, and that one day they might replace those human physicians. Um, you must have heard people talking about the future or not of radiologists. I haven't heard about people talking about the future or not of radiologists. No, I haven't. Though it makes sense, I suppose. Well, it's, it's funny you should say that. Let me, let me enlighten you. Again, apologies. This has been very much a geeky special interest of mine for most of the last year. But look, if you talk about, to bring it back to your question, rather than my, my over-caffeinated rambling at you, when you talk about where we are for artificial intelligence in healthcare delivery right now, the main narrative that's coming out of Silicon Valley, that's coming out of computer science, is that radiologists will be the first strike for AI. They're ground zero for that, the demon that Elon Musk thinks we're unleashing on the medical world. They're, tell me, Jeff, again, sorry to do that you're of an age as me, but you must have watched Roadrunner cartoons as a child, yeah? I have, I have. Wiley Coyote, yes. Wiley doesn't win. <laughs> hold that thought. Very good. You're, you're ahead of me. Hold, hold that thought of Wiley Coyote. There's a guy called Jeffrey Hinton. Jeffrey Hinton's kind of one of the leading computer scientists working in the world today. English, been at this kind of focused on AI since the 70s, now teaches out of Toronto. Jeffrey Hinton has a wonderful quote about radiologists. If you're working as a radiologist right now, you're like Wiley Coyote in the cartoon. You're over the cliff. Your legs are spinning. Um, you just haven't looked down yet. There is no ground there. So radiologists are very much seen by the establishment, by that computer scientist narrative. And obviously, that's a narrative that's funded really quite heavily by private equity. I don't know if you know this, Jeff, like of all of the areas of our lives, of business, the, the analysts, the investors a tipping AI to transform. It's, it's our sector. It's healthcare that's seen the greatest private equity investment over the last five years. And as I say, a lot of that takes that view that you can replace that human element, the doctors, get to better outcomes for patients and savings for society. For me, it's, you can understand why Silicon Valley thinks this, can't you? It's very easy to look from the outside at healthcare and see a system that looks broken. And obviously, you then get people going, ooh, talking about concepts like the Uberization of healthcare. So let's forget the fact that the Uberization of anything sounded a hell of a lot better a year ago than it does now. But the fact is, what those companies, those investors who don't know the ins and outs of a remarkably complicated industry, an industry which has, you know, complex and complicated human needs and relationships at its center. What I don't think they see is that it's one thing to kind of replace an unlicensed taxi cab driver in a potentially uninsured car. 
It's completely another to replace a very well-trained physician who, more importantly, has a vacation. So where AI is in the delivery of healthcare right now is, to me, a lot of quite misfounded hype suggesting that physicians, particularly those who rely on diagnosis through medical imaging, it's a narrative that says they'll be replaced. And, and to me, that's, that's completely ill-founded and doesn't stack up. Well, even coming from the other side of the table, where I've talked to physicians over the years in doing due diligence for different mergers and acquisitions for both dermatology products and for radiology products, and that narrative of they don't really feel very comfortable at times with the diagnoses they're given, where as an example for melanoma, they would say, hmm, looks a little funny, but probably it's nothing. And then they do it biopsy and find out that it, it was a melanoma or, or vice versa, where things can look really quite funky and end up not being anything. So hearing that they would be replaced in that aspect, not terribly surprising to me, I guess, from the provider side and similar stories from the radiology side, where there was one nurse who had the eagle eye and could spot the mark on the scan. Well, somebody's got to be better with an eagle eye if you're a computer. So I guess I, I'm not surprised that they would be right in the crosshairs the state of the art wasn't very good. Yeah, so this is exactly it, though. So I think people are leaping a little too quickly to the idea of replacement. So kind of the counter-strike, if you will, to Jeffrey Hinton, the godfather of AI and his kind of seeming vendetta against imaging specialists. I did quite a bit of work in cardiology, where, again, imaging is a big thing. One of the big voices around technology, medical practice from that world of cardiology is Eric Topol. Are you, are you familiar with oh, that? Of course, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. So Scripps Institute of Translational Medicine, author of Creative Destruction of Medicine, Patient Will See You Now. I sometimes wonder myself if Eric Topol will ever get tired of being right, because he always seems to be right. But his perspective on what those machine learning, deep learning, AI algorithms that take imaging in, what they'll do to radiology. His view is it's less about replacing the radiologist and more about displacing them and in a positive manner. So rather than spending valuable time extracting information from medical imaging, the advent of AI assistance that, as you say, can have that eagle eye, can be perhaps more reliable, the impact of that is those radiologists are now going to have more time to spend interpreting that information in the clinical context of the patient, yeah? So it's less like Wiley Coyote going over the cliff, if you will, and more like Wiley Coyote finally having the time to get his nose out of the Acme book of whatever and to sit down with a coffee with Roadrunner and talk about what they both really want from their relationship. So it's the idea almost of... AI not superseding and not replacing the physician, but kind of taking a Robin role to their Batman, if you will. Behind the scenes, there are essentially AIs. I say essentially AIs. There are algorithms, protocols that already are in place at hospitals that are generally smart about these things. For example, with diagnosis of whether or not you're having a myocardial infarction, you go through a series of tests, and if you score well enough, you're admitted. If you don't, you're not in some cases, regardless sometimes of what the story is. Like a patient that comes in with a good story, it, it hurt in the right place, you know, in your arm or in your face or your left jaw, those kinds of things end up being, if I'm remembering the paper right, 
quite misleading where people made worse decisions if they were a human hearing the story than if they had a certain limited subset of data points and then focused on only the things that really mattered, bun scores and the like. I'm seeing AI already in place in hospital systems in writ large. Like It's not really artificial intelligence. It's somebody sat down and figured out this is the playbook that we run in these cases. And to a certain extent, guidelines for oncology are in a way that kind of it's not a, a human at the time making a decision. It's a human looking through a set of guidelines that even if the oncologist wants to do something different, the payer may not pay for anything different. So they're in effect forced into one route. Are we talking about something different from that when we're talking about artificial intelligence in healthcare? Or is this the same thing we've seen now for years? No, no, you raised some really good points. Again, I promise I'll move away from radiology in a second. I mean, you just mentioned oncology, where I think there's there's some valuable things to say. But radiologists for years have had computer-aided diagnosis, CAD. And Mm -hmm. obviously, by the time it's been approved by FDA, it does, as you say, become quite a rigorous checklist. And the way that CAD is actually used in practice, it's less of artificial intelligence and even less like that Batman-Robin kind of equivalent I drew. It's talk to radiologists and they will tell you that they use it more like a spell checker than anything else. You know, it's not that informed second opinion. It's a safety check. It's akin to a spell check. But oncology raises a really good point because, of course, I mean, we all know that the poster child for AI in healthcare exists in oncology. You know where I'm coming from, yeah? Poster child for AI exists in oncology. For AI in healthcare. If, if, we, if we talk about the technology for AI live in the world for healthcare now, well, we need to talk about Watson, don't we? So, you know, for the last three years, IBM's Watson has been sold worldwide for recommending treatment decisions, you know. The strap line is that Watson will outthink cancer. I don't know if you know this, and again, apologies, it's perhaps a geeky niche interest. There was a wonderful report by Stat News at the end of last year that kind of highlighted the reality of this. And again, it comes down to the fact that, well, the first thing it comes down to is, you know, IBM's Watson might have been able to be human players at Jeopardy, but it turns (laughs) out, guess what? Cancer isn't a game show. Who knew? And Watson is having a problem actually differentiating different types of cancer from one another. It's not being trusted by oncologists. And it's starting to actually show some of the problems you get with, I spoke earlier about deep learning and machine learning. Some of the problems you get there are that you need to train an algorithm on a data set. And Watson, if my memory of the very long stat news piece holds here, my understanding is Watson was kind of trained on one big data set from one US institution. I want to say Sloan Kettering, I cannot swear to this. But because of that, when it's been deployed in hospitals worldwide, and Watson has been out there in the real world, sold to outthink cancer for the last three years, what it means from that data set is Watson's basically biased in favor of a certain profile of American oncology patient. You know, you've had physicians in Korea going, this recommendation isn't touching the treatment guidelines we have in our country. So I personally think one of the big reasons why we're not going to see AI taking a big role in replacing physicians anytime soon is the technology is still, to quote that stat report 
on Watson, which quoted one of their customers saying, it's still in its infancy, Watson is a toddler. You also touched on another really good point when you spoke about those kind of existing algorithms, pathways, checklists, if you will, decision trees that are followed at the moment. All of those kind of decision trees, if you're checking people off against variables and established medical clinical scoring criteria, what you're getting to is very much an explainable decision. And this, that being able to explain the decision that a device or an algorithm has got to is massively important for whatever the future of AI in medicine might be. Because the way that deep learning, machine learning, the way those algorithms work is, well, it's quite an unexplainable decision. It's very much a black box going in there. You can't kind of unpick it and say, okay, for this patient at this point in time, the outcome from this black box algorithm is this because of X, Y, and Z. And more than that, every time you add a new piece of data into that kind of black box system, that black box becomes still more opaque. And it's a huge problem for any computerized system that seeks to make a diagnosis or a treatment recommendation because they're going to start running up against legislation. Have you, have you heard of GDPR? No reason you should. GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation? I have not. <laughs> Is a quiz. <laughs> Believe me, like our company lawyers have and the lawyers from all our clients have. G GDPR comes into force in the EU in May this year. It applies to any business worldwide that wants to do business within the EU. And it kind of basically states, I think it's Article 22. I won't do the freakish thing of quoting the article at you. It basically states that people have the right not to be subject to any decisions made about them that cannot be explained. It's basically asking, and some of it comes down to legal accountability, but you cannot have a situation under that regulation where someone is told, okay, you've got this condition, take this particular medicine, it's easily the best for you. If they can challenge that and go, why exactly am I being told this and no explanation can be given, that's illegal. It's a huge risk. So for accountability alone, doctors will still need to be in charge and these systems will continue to be used. It does down the current quality of thinking and engineering out there, software engineering. It does it down for me to say they'll just be used like spell checkers, but they will be just second opinions. So doctors are not going to be replaced. The technology, the regulation, the ethics. The other big reason that I see the money coming in from private equity, which I think was about 1.8 billion between 2012 and Q1 last year, and about 300 separate private equity investments for healthcare and AI. As I say, healthcare, the most heavily funded private equity sector. Silicon Valley is seeing a lot of this. It is computer science setting itself up against the medical establishment. And the third reason, alongside technology being in its infancy, and the problem with regulation and legality. The third problem with why I think the narrative of doctors being replaced is wrong is that there's a fundamental tension between the world of medicine and between the mindset of technology companies and Silicon Valley. It's best paraphrased in Mark Zuckerberg's line, isn't it? You've got Silicon Valley's mantra of move fast and break things, but 
The world of evidence-based medicine, it's not about move fast and break things at all. It's about move slowly and take care. So there, there are some fundamental reasons why that narrative of a doctor being replaced just isn't going to happen in any near time future. We'll bring this back to what a pharma company cares about with artificial intelligence. But before we get there, is there something that makes sense to the patient or doesn't make sense to the patient when we're talking about artificial intelligence? I mean, after all, if they're going to interact with the artificial intelligence, they better be willing to interact with the artificial intelligence. Jeff, Jeff, it's uncanny. It's as if you've been briefed on what I'm really into at the moment. My first problem with uh, artificial intelligence and healthcare conversation is, as I say, it's kind of overly focused on the Silicon Valley narrative of replacing the physician. My biggest problem with healthcare's AI conversation is that nowhere, nowhere has there been any sense of the voice of the patient. What are their hopes, their expectations, their fears? And this starts to be a little absurd when if you start looking at, again, what the analysts and consultancies are predicting for AI in healthcare, there's some absolutely wonderful data from Accenture just last year that kind of breaks out a kind of $150 billion opportunity in the US market kicking off from November 2026. So $150 billion of opportunity. The number one opportunity for AI in America, and it's great analysis, I, I take this quite seriously, the number one opportunity is robots doing orthopedic surgery. So we've got this scenario where patients will literally be at the sharp end of this robot algorithmic AI future. But no one really has looked at data on what the patients and their caregivers really think about any of this. This is kind of what, what's been a bit of a personal obsession for about the last three months. Kind of me and my team have gone, okay, okay, th this clearly doesn't work. If society's going to realize these benefits, you know, that 150 billion that AI is supposed to deliver, then surely there needs to be some kind of participatory understanding between technology companies, between life sciences companies, the people who, you know, know the most about their product, between patients and between physicians. And our kind of thinking on that, we're just about to publish, it's the results of what I think is the first kind of global survey of patient hopes, fears, and expectations in this area. It's not to say that people haven't published some research on what, for example, general public or consumers think about healthcare and AI, but kind of, I'm a bit like, what was it, it was that, that brilliant line from Warren Buffett just the other day, talking about the partnership between Amazon, JP Morgan, and obviously Berkshire Hathaway, looking at the real burden on society of healthcare. He called healthcare costs a tapeworm. And for me, <laughs> that tapeworm doesn't come from consumers. That comes from people with chronic conditions who make the heaviest use of our health service. And so when I say we've done a survey of patients, I'm not talking about going out and so many people, when they look at the potential upsides of new technology, just get this obsession on millennials, because, you know, millennials will use anything, won't they? I mean, they've even apparently used Snapchat. Who knows what that's for? And it's that obsession of look at generation now and what they think of an AI future. I'm less interested in that. So the focus of the research we've done, it looks at generation right now. So these are the older people 
who have the most to gain from improved healthcare and where we can pass on the greatest benefits to society. So we've looked at people with type 2 diabetes, we've looked at people with atrial fibrillation, we've looked at people with breast cancer. And this is interesting when you're moving this towards what's real, what's practical, what can be done. We've also looked at the carers of people with Parkinson's. And I'm going to have to say that that was quite a deliberate move. Jeff, you're American. Unlike my European colleagues, you guys have had kind of technologies like Amazon's Alexa in market since, what, about 2015. You're, you're a user of Alexa, yeah? I'm, I'm not an Alexa user, but I'm an iPhone user. Yes, Siri kind of stays there as, you know, the voice assistant that most of us met first. Um, yes, but only on the Australian accent because I, just, I, I can't quite take the original. It's, it's interesting that you have such a strong preference for the accent, and I think this is something I'll, I'll probably come back to. But obviously, voice recognition, being able to at least understand and interpret as a text string what a human is saying, is a very real and really quite mature application of artificial intelligence that is now, as I say, Uh-oh. after Amazon's stunning sales figures over Christmas, in more homes than ever. And we kind of monitor a lot of patient communities, patient social media discussion on behalf of our clients. Around Christmas 2016, you started to see in communities of people with or carers for uh, conditions like Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's, you started to see that these people were massive early adopters of Alexa as an assistive technology to help them manage their lives and their conditions. And people were talking about the very fact that if you have tremors, operating things around the home can be difficult. Using a keyboard and a mouse can be difficult. If you switch that so that the UI, the user interface, is AI in the form of speech, you suddenly have something more compelling. Home automation, being able to set simple reminders around medication. And you started to see in social media, and God, Jeff, It's great when you can see entrepreneurial patients kind of showing the things that perhaps some of our clients should do. You could see entrepreneurial patients testifying, even on Amazon.com's own product review pages, to the fact that Alexa, out of the box, without any special skills intended for health, was helping people remain in their own homes for longer, helping them feel normal for as long as possible. Um, You see people going, I've recommended it to my therapist, they're giving it to every patient. We explicitly in our research, we have all of this anecdotal information that voice could be a very, very easy, very, very real way for AI to help, as I say, you know, generation right now. And so we focused on carers of people with PD and actually long, long story short, we did kind of prove the fact that carers of people with Parkinson's disease are three times more likely to have used the voice assistant for health purposes than any of the other patients that we looked at. Patient voices have been missing. We've published some research on it, and voice is actually quite a key theme. So you talk to people of the age of being treated patients. Sounds like there's not particularly a problem that they're having with voice recognition, at least. How many patients did you talk to? It was a large number, if I recall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really good question. So we did 800, and 
the biggest number of those, I think got about 450 to 500 in type 2 diabetes, which I think that's good recognition of where some of the biggest segments of Warren Buffett's tapeworm are there with type 2. But, you know, we've got a significant number, so, you know, over 100, so we can start looking at percentages and comparable percentages for people with AFib and people with breast cancer. And again, we did the US, and we were very keen to actually do all of the EU5, um, if only because, you know, you have different nuances of technologies. For all I might talk about things like voice, Alexa in Europe has only been in Europe and Germany, and I think Google Home is in France as well. So there are different dynamics, but we were still interested in the big themes. And it's good that you've picked up on the fact that, you know, voice is obviously a preference, and we can talk more about that later. But when it comes to AI full stop, one of the key findings is the kind of excitement, the, the febrile air of the investor and technology sectors. This really isn't matched by consumers at all. Um, I think like people like me, like you, these are people whose views of AI have been largely shaped by Hollywood and science fiction dystopias. I mean, when, when we ask people about perceptions of AI and some of their concerns arising from this, you can clearly see the spirit of Kubrick's Hal looming over this. People's top of mind perceptions, what do you think of? You think of AI. You've got a lot of people saying how or 2001. You've got a lot of people, I mean, robots is what people most commonly think of. But 60% of all our respondents say that they are concerned about the potential of AI for healthcare. Um, those biggest concerns, I spoke earlier about patients being at literally the sharp end of robot surgeons. The idea that a machine error might result in mismanagement of health comes out really strongly. People are also obviously really concerned about healthcare data and privacy, and that's unsurprising given the times that we live in. When it comes to that really critical thing, well, I don't know, Jeff, what do you think this audience might say if you start talking to them about the benefits they might see in perhaps having a physician replaced? Benefits of having a physician replaced, number one, would be costless. Now, I don't know that that matters so much to a pharmaceutical executive necessarily other than total cost of care. That is a huge benefit, I think, for the healthcare system overall is, number one, cost less. Number two, if an AI can do it better than a human, then you get better outcomes. So those two things from the patient perspective, and I think if you're on the pharmaceutical side, you care about because you care about healthcare. What I think you also care about and what I would be keenly interested in figuring out is am I in the protocol or am I not in the protocol? Because if I'm not programmed into the AI, if the AI doesn't think my drug deserves a mention, I'm out. Oh, you're very much onto something there. The short story is patients don't want to see their doctors replaced. And, you know, your continuity of care is as important to a physician as it is to a drug maker who wants to ensure that there's kind of ongoing adherence and persistence. And obviously, continuity of care is important to patients. You've only got about one in five who see any benefit in diagnosis or treatment recommendation from machine. But here's where it gets interesting. And Jeff, you spoke quite rightly, given the audience listening to this podcast, the audience you've built, for the pharmaceutical executives. While patients might not perceive benefits in physician interactions being replaced with dealing with algorithm, computer, robot, what you will for AI, 
if you start switching the focus to, okay, how about some of those interactions with other stakeholders in the care system? How about some of the things that we traditionally expect to have from nurses? How about if some of those nurse interactions such as, oh, I don't know, providing ongoing monitoring and support around taking a particular prescription product? How would you feel about those? And that's where it does get interesting because not only do I think all of the markets we looked at have a problem with being able to provide as much care from nurses for support and education as we'd like, all of those markets, you've got about 64% of patients across those therapy groups are comfortable with, to bring it back to what might this mean to pharmaceutical executives, for what you could call a virtual nurse assistant providing support explicitly around a particular prescription product that that patient is on. They see immediate benefits such as obviously 24-7 access to answers. It's scenarios such as, okay, I missed my dose, I can either panic about this, I can try and call a nurse, or maybe I can talk to a voice assistant, maybe I can message a virtual nurse assistant through a chatbot interface. That idea of scaling scarce nurse resources, including around support for specific products, is one that has a lot of appeal to patients. And we spoke about voice earlier. You know, voice, voice is currently making millions of homes smart. It also seems from our findings that same technology, AI is the UI, voice recognition that's making homes smarter, could also perhaps be what helps to make patients smarter. Um, if you ask patients what are the characteristics, if you will, of a virtual nurse assistant, what really appeals if you're dealing with someone? I'm going to go back to your comment about the Australian accent. It used to be when people researched, can you have a therapeutic relationship with kind of an artificial agent? And there's been a lot of research on this in the last 20 years. People used to think that to kind of embody a virtual assistant, you needed things like a semi-realistic face on a screen. You needed to kind of give a realistic gender, um, ideally a name to a virtual nurse assistant. It seems in the era of the smartphone, in the era of Siri, voice alone is enough to embody a therapeutic relationship. There was, there was even a survey at the end of last year around users of Siri, Cortana, Bixby, Alexa, all of those voice assistants, where for me, the headline finding kind of reinforces the fact that voice can build a relationship. And that stat was that apparently 20% of people who regularly use voice assistants have had sexual fantasies about that voice assistant. Jeff, talk to me more about this Australian accent. <laughs> You're making me rethink my role as a person who is now podcasting and using my voice. Um, <laughs> Brilliant. If I'm thinking really honestly about what I care about on a go-forward basis for a pharmaceutical company, I want to make sure that my marketing, my data, are data that an AI cares about and gets into protocols. Let's talk about that. Like, How do you get into being what an AI picks up and an AI cares about? Okay, this is really interesting. What this kind of current age of accelerations we're living through demands of 
all stakeholders within healthcare. You know, it's easy for me to talk about Silicon Valley being opposed to the medical establishment, pharma having its own agenda. I think fast moving times and the opportunities, I will go back, by the way, to Warren Buffett's tapeworm line. And I'll, I'll also make the aside that there's no way on earth that the new super healthcare system being cooked up for Amazon, JP Morgan and Berkshire Hathaway employees doesn't have Alexa as, as a key part of it. If you really want to reduce the size of that tapeworm and the burden on society, I think people are going to have to start collaborating, working together and developing partnership strategies that might have been a little foreign to them before. Because here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. You talk about the right protocol, recognizing the right artificial agent has got the right detail on the right product. Pharma companies are the experts on their products. They honestly are. No one knows more. No one has spent the time in the the clinical R&D period. They are the complete experts on their product. And you would think that that might suggest an opportunity, perhaps for pharma, for virtual nurse assistants focused perhaps on starting patients on a new product, for supporting patients on a product, and for supporting patients on a product as one of the portfolio of medications they take. You might think that there was an opportunity for pharma to kind of bring those virtual nurse assistants to market themselves, but the kicker is obviously public trust in pharmaceutical companies. So you might start thinking, okay, well, is the opportunity here partnership perhaps with a company like an Amazon, a Google, or an Apple. And Jeff, I'll tell you what, one of the things that really surprised me when I went into this research, and it's been a process as properly listening to patients often is that kind of upsets your expectations and kind of, I mean, upsets in a good way. I actually thought we were going to hear from patients that they would love these kind of services to be brought to them by a company like Amazon, by a company like Apple and that the recommendation was going to be, hey, big pharma, get in bed with the big four tech firms. Um, The fact is, for delivering this kind of thing around health, those tech firms are, on a trust level, on par with pharma. That's to say they're in the towards the bottom of a chart of, of trusted partners for this kind of thing. At the top of any list of who patients would trust and embrace a virtual nurse assistant being developed and provided by are unsurprisingly traditionally trusted stakeholders in medicine. They trust their doctors, they trust their hospitals. In some conditions, notably type 2 diabetes, they would place their greatest faith in the recommendation and endorsement of their pharmacist. So I think to make sure that all stakeholders equally benefit, society, manufacturers, patients, There needs to be some way of formulating how the tools that are developed using these emerging technologies are done in properly collaborative partnerships that actively do seek to involve physicians themselves. My kind of shorthand on some of the results we've been seeing, it's it's not only the patients not want their physicians replaced, they actually want those physicians to take on yet another new role as these technologies evolve and that's to be responsible for you know, both helping to determine the ethics and regulation around anything to do with AI that touches the patient, but also to be responsible for checking that the right data, the right, as you say, protocols and the right tools are all in that portfolio of services 
that get delivered to the patient. You can even start to see models for that new kind of partnership developing. I'll go back to radiology, who, you know, hopefully you kind of took my point that radiologists are very much the canary in the coal mine for a lot of this kind of stuff. Well, the American College of Radiologists, about two years ago, actually took this stuff by the horns, and they set up what's called the, the Data Science Institute. So this is partnership between those technology firms, between the people who make the products, that's the hardware involved in CAT scanners and the like, with patient representatives. And it's that idea of nothing less than the mandate of in this age of accelerations where AI is getting progressively more real, perhaps just starting at the user interface level, moving back through that machine learning. Um, in this age, making sure that you know, the future of medicine is something that you can help define rather than which just happens to you. It's, it's that idea of a third way, isn't it? It's not just move fast and break things or move slow and take care. But I think the ethos that's going to get value for everyone is very much one of move together and shape things. To make sure the pharma execs, pharma products get the data properly represented in any patient-facing systems moving forward. It's about getting out of a mentality that says you can do it on your own. Doug and Arbor, thanks so much for joining me on the Cineos Health Podcast. It's been a pleasure. Jeff, thank you so much. Duncan's report is called Artificial Intelligence for Authentic Engagement, Patient Perspectives on Healthcare's Evolving AI Conversation. You can find a link to this report in our show notes. I'm Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. That's all for today's Cineos Health Podcast. If you have questions, comments, suggestions, or if you just want to talk through a particular challenge that you have at your pharmaceutical or biotech company, you may email me at podcast at cineoshealth.com. That's podcast at S-Y-N-E-O-S-Health.com. We're consultants. That is what we do. 20% of people who regularly use voice assistants have had sexual fantasies about that voice assistant. <laughs>